Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. This is really such a wonderful idea for a podcast because you not only hear about the celebrity or the icon that someone's chosen to talk about, but you also get a real insight as to why they chose them. That was today's guest, author Louise Beach. And to hear who she's chosen and why she's chosen them, stay tuned. It took many years and many rejections for Louise to finally get a book deal in 2015. Since then, she's published a whopping eight novels, including Nothing Else, The Lion Tamer Who Lost, I Am Dust, Call Me Stargirl, and This Is How We Are Human. Louise's memoir, Daffodils, is out now as an audiobook and explores a shocking family suicide attempt and a very challenging childhood. Some listeners may find parts of our conversation upsetting. I just want to get this out of the way before we start, Louise. You and I have a few things in common. We're both from working class backgrounds, yours in Hull, mine in South Wales. We've both published half a dozen or so novels in a variety of different genres. We've both written a memoir and we both survived childhoods that were challenging and perhaps even dysfunctional in some ways and which helped shape the people that we are today. We'll come on to that topic later, but this is a podcast first and foremost about heroes, heroines or sheroes, people who've inspired us or those that we've learned valuable life lessons from. So let's start with your first hero, heroine. Who is it and why have you chosen them? It is the glamorous, glorious, probably still one of the most famous women in the world, Marilyn Monroe. And I kind of fell in love with her when I was about 12. I saw a poster of her in the HMV shop window and I actually didn't know who she was, which is quite unbelievable when you think how famous she is. And I just, something about her, there was a vulnerability in the picture, there was beauty, it was just magnetic. And so I bought the poster, put the poster above my bed and felt like she kind of watched over me. There is a mother theme to a lot of my heroines, shall we say. And then a few days after I put this poster up, I had a dream about her, still not really knowing who she was. I dreamt that we were swimming together and she was really sad and she was crying and it was getting washed away with the water. And she said, Louise, I'm going to let go now. And when I woke in the night, I swear I felt like there were tears on the poster. I could have still been half asleep. I know that. But she was smiling on the poster, but yet there were tears. And it was just very moving and powerful. So the next day, I told my best friend about this. By then, I figured out her name was Marilyn Monroe. And my friend literally went, oh my God, Louise, you, you're just a freak. And I was like, why? She said, last night was 23 years since she died. And I was like, what? And I had not known that fact when she said that. So as you can imagine, Paul, after that, 
I just read every book about her, started watching all of the films and it kind of went from there. I need to ask about this poster because I had a poster of Marilyn Monroe on my wall when I was a teenager and she does look like Marilyn, the movie icon. Then I remember going to the library and finding a book called The Last Sitting, I think it was called, and it was all these photographs of her taken shortly before she died. And you can see there the person behind that glamorous image, the kind of vulnerability of her. Yes, um, there definitely were these two sides. You see, this is the thing. A lot of people just see the glamour goddess, uh, the dumb blonde, which is such a shame that she got labelled a dumb blonde because she was far from stupid. You don't get to that level of fame if you're stupid. You know, you don't get where she got. She had a childhood much like ours, Paul. She had a very dysfunctional mother who was in and out of a mental hospital. She uh, had an absent father. She was in and out of care. She had very little education. She was married off to the boy next door at 16 because the foster carers didn't want to look after her anymore. And she very sadly was abused in a couple of the foster homes. So to carve out a career like she did, the stardom like she did, and beginning with those few things in life is just profound. But Marilyn was kind of born, and I love this story. It gives me goosebumps every time. Marilyn said that she was in one of the foster homes. She was about 12 years old. And um, the woman kind of fussed her and, and made her feel beautiful, as she described. She kind of curled her hair and put some red lipstick on her and gave her a mirror. And the then Norma Jean looked in the mirror and said, there was this other person looking back at me who was kind of beautiful and special. And she thought, I want to be that person. So when they later suggested she change her name, she realised she became that person that she kind of always sort of dreamed of being. Isn't that a bit magic? I love that. I think there is a degree to which all of us wear different personas or masks, depending on which company we're in. We're different people when we're with our close friends than we are with people we don't know so much. But I think it's especially true of people who have a public persona. And I think part of that is about having something to hide behind and keeping your private self away from that. Absolutely. I think that's what I think that's what Marilyn did, because the real her to come to. Sometimes I don't know what to call the real her, because she herself didn't even want it to be Norma Jean, because she felt like this was this sad little girl that she wanted to bury. But as we all know, you, you can't bury a childhood. So let's say Marilyn without the Monroe. That's what I often think of her as just Marilyn, like she's our friend and we know her. The real Marilyn w was... Um, She's self-educated, a bit like I have, because I, I got pregnant when I was 19, so I didn't go to university, so I'm not very well educated. But she was well-read. She was hungry for knowledge. She wrote poems, and they're, they're very moving. There's a book called Fragments, if you want to look that one up, and it's a collection of all the things that she wrote in her life in notepads, and it's all put together with really gorgeous pictures. And there's some really, really beautiful poems about, about love, about life, uh, some dark and sad ones. You see a lot of her in her trauma uh, she she talks there's a lovely poem about bridges which obviously means something to me which we come to later um, where she often looked at bridges and thought what beautiful things they were and she thought that sometimes if she did want to die she used to say I would never jump off a bridge because they're too beautiful and I just thought that's really profound isn't it if you know what I mean it's also quite spooky given the marriage to Arthur Miller and the play A View from a Bridge 
I was watching the Netflix documentary about her and you get a real sense that she marries Arthur Miller and she feels that she's going to be taken seriously and treated well. And then she discovers that notebook where he refers to her as being a prostitute practically and, and makes terrible comments about her. And they really devastated her, didn't they? Yeah, because I think she saw him as a father figure as well. Because as, as that documentary keeps saying repeatedly, the narrator, he says, powerful men, powerful men, powerful men. And I, I think she was just looking for her father, wasn't she? You know, someone to protect mm. her, somebody who was older. And I think Arthur Miller sadly let her down the most. I, I really do. What a betrayal to read something like that about yourself. We'd all be heartbroken, wouldn't we? To think that in their head, your husband thinks that of you. I mean, just, you can't even imagine, can you? So so I, do, I feel like that was, around that time was when her life began to unravel. You know, we all know about the um, addiction to pills. That became a lot worse later in life. She struggled to sleep, which I think is from trauma. Again, childhood, night terrors. And she got addicted because obviously then there are long days on set where they then have to take uppers, don't they, to work 18 hours a day. I mean, it becomes a cycle. But I don't actually think she ever wanted to die. I personally think she just wanted to not be in pain. And that's the case for a lot of people, isn't it? What do you think you have learnt from her as a hero, role model? Mm, that's a really good question. I don't know if I've ever considered that before. I suppose, in a way, we can, and I can, maybe learn by her mistakes, so to speak, in that, because she created this incredibly beautiful and happy, the key word is happy because she was famous for that smile, persona, which is something I often do when I'm talking about difficult things, I'll make light, I'll make a joke. And I think, kind of, because she set herself up that way, it was very hard then, to reveal the real her and be taken seriously and to be considered as a human being rather than just this icon goddess. So it does make me sometimes think that we should talk about these difficult things, which is something I'm now beginning to do. And I wonder how much she did contribute to that. Possibly a lot, to be fair. Possibly a lot to being open and discussing our pain. Yeah. So that's your first icon, hero. And who is your second one and why? My second one, again, by the way, they're all M's. Everybody's going to realise it's just really weird. <laughs> and also linked by another M, which is a motherly vibe, because I didn't really say, but the Marilyn thing is a little bit of a, a motherly thing. Like, I don't know, there's something quite maternal about her. I feel like she would sort of look after you and she was apparently like that. So my second icon, she's another icon, <laughs> is Madeline Black, who is a huge activist on uh, on the Me Too scene. Um, she wrote a memoir. It's a devastating, um, impactful, powerful, but uplifting memoir called Unbroken, which came out five years ago. And that explores that when Madeline was just 13 years old, she was brutally gang raped by two men who held her captive for 24 hours in their flat and um, brutalised her to the point where, and this was such a moving scene in the book, she had an out-of-body experience and she feels like it was a moment when she came close to death, where she was sitting on the wardrobe, kind of watching this happen. And when she was sitting up there, this monk was sitting next to her, with her, and she was watching it with him. 
And so she obviously took that away from this horrendous experience too. So she came home and being 13 and full of shame and everything else associated with something like that, she didn't tell anyone. She just buried it. And so, as we can imagine, her teenage years were horrific. She ended up in a lot of psychiatric units. She was at times suicidal. And she just kind of, she got on with life. She did meet a lovely husband, lovely husband who she's still with. And she had three daughters. So she buried it, didn't explore it, didn't think about it. And then when her first daughter hit 13, which was a key age, obviously, it came back to her like as though she was seeing a movie is the way she describes it. It hit her like a truck. And she more or less had a breakdown and went into some really intensive therapy. She um, did a lot of meditation. She explored a lot of spirituality because this monk that she'd seen had fascinated her. And I believe, it's a long time since I've read the book, but I leave for, believe for about 10 years she went through this therapy. And she came out of the other side and she realised that the only way to move on was to forgive these two men, which I think is just incredible. And she has forgiven them. They were never found because she never reported it, never knew who they were. Um, and so now she spends her life speaking about it and opening that conversation. She does TED Talks. She's travelled all over the world. Um, she's inter been interviewed by Trevor MacDonald, by Jeremy Vine. And so how could she not be an icon, um, Paul, for all of us? She's incredible. I'd like to pick up on what you said there and what, what she talks about shame. One of the reasons that I chose to call my memoir We Can Be Heroes and also this podcast is because as a young gay kid, I grew up with a lot of shame around my sexuality. And then later in life, when a bit like the story you've just told, where the person who has experienced um, the abuse, they don't remember it. You disassociate from it and it, it gets packed away somewhere. And in my case, I think part of it was that I didn't want it to, to impact on my sexuality when I came out. I didn't want to sully it and dirty it with anything. I wanted my gay sexuality to be something to be proud of. But I think that issue around that journey from shame to acceptance is a really interesting one. And I think it's one that many of us relate to for different reasons, whether it's to do with sexuality or to do with other issues that we have in our lives. I'm really in awe of her forgiveness because I'm not at the stage and wonder whether I ever will be at the stage where I can forgive the person who abused me. I don't think I can. Yes, it's, it's probably the most commendable human attribute, isn't it, to be able to forgive that. And I agree with you. I don't know if I'm, I'm there yet. I think Madeline is very evolved She's given a lot of time to making sure she becomes evolved. And she's uh, this tiny woman as well. And when you meet her, there's such a calmness, an inner calm. So it does make me think that it's worth trying to get to that stage. I stayed at her house once. She lives in Glasgow. And we've done a few events together over the years. She encouraged me to write my memoir. She's one of the big people that helped me along that journey. And when I stayed at her house, I don't often feel safe in people's houses. It's a childhood thing. Um, and I've never slept so well in my life as I did at Madeline's house because I just, I don't know what it was. I just felt like I'm safe in this house. Nothing's going to happen to me here. It's weird, isn't it? 
I always felt safer in other people's houses, and that's a childhood thing. If you re- if you catch my drift, <laughs> sadly, you know the, the big bad wolf blowing the house down. You know what do you do when he lives in the house? He's in the house. Yeah. You know he's not outside the house. We know that the overwhelming amount of abuse takes place within the family. That's simply a fact. It still makes it very difficult to talk about with people because. It means that the people that are supposed to be your support network and are closest to you are also impacted by it. And it's often the case that they don't want to address it or they don't want to deal with it. I can't even imagine that. I mean, I'm very lucky that uh, I have the support of my siblings. It's more our, our mother who doesn't want to believe or speak of. Yeah. Let's talk, about, let's talk about her now, because I think that this is the natural place to talk about her so tell me a bit about your mum if you met my mum paul you would love her she is funny she's vivacious um i mean she's she's frail now because of what happened to her which i'll come to but back in the day she was the kind of woman that would come in a room and light the room up that that is so i suppose it's a bit almost like the persona thing we talked about but she should have never been a mother she, we believe that she has narcissistic personality disorder. So the world kind of evolves around her. And if she shines her sun on you, it's all wonderful. And you, you know, you're um, warm and basking in that light. But when she switches that off, it's a cold place. So she was very neglectful. She was also an alcoholic. And she had numerous men living in our house because my parents got divorced when I was eight. It's a tender age because you're old enough to understand but still very young. It's, it's a really tender age, isn't it? It's like, but to be fair, I wasn't unhappy because my dad was quite a cool, distant figure. So it, I, I wasn't too unhappy about that. The irony is my childhood until that point was relatively all right. It was after that when my mum was kind of free to do what she wanted to drink and have all the men in and there were parties. And she made a serious suicide attempt when she when I was nine. And then we went into care. And we were kind of in and out of living with my grandma, being in an orphanage nearby. So it's very disrupted. But she came first, my mum. She wasn't really interested in us. We were in a hindrance. And sadly, she told us that regularly. She completely always told us, you know, I was selfish and lazy and we're a hindrance. And so she had a variety of boyfriends. One was violent to all of us. And he was removed by the police from the house. And another one a bit like my mother in a way, was deceptively nice, but he groomed us and he was a paedophile and he abused my sisters and me when I was 10 and they were six. And although I don't fully remember it all, as we've talked about memory, you know when something happens. Even if you can't remember all the details of it, which I still can't, and I wondered if writing the memoir would bring those memories back. It didn't. So I'm wondering if they're so deeply buried, they may never come back. And maybe that's a good thing. Who knows? Have you ever had any kind of talking therapies around that? I haven't, but I feel like my writing has been my therapy all of my life. I feel like I go to the page with the pain and create stories and explore it there. But my sisters have both had quite a lot of therapy so I feel like, how come I haven't and they have? And I'm thinking it must be the writing, Paul. It must. It's all it can be. I think for a long time, I used the writing as my outlet. And there just came a point. It was actually when David Bowie died. I mean, it's so bizarre. When you talk about 
Marilyn Monroe being like a mother figure, David Bowie was like a father figure to me. He was, he was such an important person to me growing up. He was the first person who made being gay, bisexual, queer, not just okay, but actually something to aspire to. And that to me was profoundly empowering and it saved my life, it literally saved my life. And when he died, it just triggered something and all these memories came back. When I came to write my memoir, I, what I found was that there were memories that I knew that I had. And when I was writing them down, I suddenly realized that they were triggering other memories that I didn't know that I had, but they would surface. Did you have a similar experience in the process of writing your memoir? Were there surprises along the way? There were, yes. None to do with the abuse that I discussed, but other aspects. And some of it was obviously very traumatic. And luckily, my all of my siblings supported me writing the memoir. So they were there for me and they would say to me, you know, when you've written for the day, do something good, do something kind, do something you enjoy and be good to yourself. Because obviously I was, I was writing the second half of my memoir was actually during lockdown, which was very intense. But there was one scene from my childhood that I'd never really looked at properly I could remember it but it's almost like I didn't want to look and it was it was when we'd been living with my grandma that's my two sisters who were five and I was nine uh after my mother had made a suicide attempt and I was nine and our mother was finally coming to see us and the twins were delighted because they were five they wanted their mother I was nine I was less trusting because I think I'd already detached from her because of all these things going on I'd kind of started mothering my sisters and pulled away. And I don't know why I knew. I don't know whether I overheard or if I just knew. I knew she wasn't coming to take us home. I knew she was just coming to see us for an hour. But I thought if I tell the twins that, they're going to be devastated. I thought, because they think my mother's coming to get us. And I had to decide at the age of nine, do I tell them, do I not tell them? Do I, you know, are they going to just find out? Well, I didn't tell them. Our mother came and when she left, they cried and sobbed. And I felt so guilty that I hadn't, hadn't it's making me emotional now honestly I felt so guilty that I hadn't told them and and stopped them having that trauma and I look back and I thought I was nine and that responsibility was on me to sort of be a mini mum and make decisions and I thought where was my pain and I thought it wasn't there because I just had to ignore my pain and I remember I used to lay in bed on a night when we lived there and have all the covers off so I would freeze and I used to think I'll just freeze and I won't feel the pain well, isn't that awful at nine? Children who've experienced neglect or abuse blame themselves. They yeah. think it's somehow their fault that they're not lovable. I know certainly many gay men and other members of the communities that I'm part of who felt they couldn't reveal who they truly were to their families, as I felt as a child, mm -hmm. as a young person, for fear of being rejected. But you clearly were not responsible for your for your mother's neglect and your mother's bad behaviour. It's really it's awful that you felt that because you were the eldest of the of the siblings that you had to look after the younger two. I always did. I looked after my brother was um, eight years younger than me, so I literally was like his mother. And even now, there's me, then there's the twins, and then there's my brother. And my brother was a lot. My brother wasn't with us at my grandma's. He got fostered because he was only a year and a half. God love him. And my grandma was sixty two. And, 
you know, I think she wanted to take all four of us in, but the social services said, you know, he he's still in nappies. I, I, we don't think you can do manage all four of them. She had to give her a job up, God love her. She was only a cleaner at a hospital, but she had to give her a job up. And it, this is probably going to lead neatly into my, if you want me to, into my third person. It is going to need, yeah. lead neatly in. She was a devout Catholic, was my grandma. I mean, in her, she had a humble council house in um, Stockton-on-Tees, but it's a place where I always felt loved. I always felt loved there. Even though she was very strict, my grandma, there, there wasn't much affection and she didn't verbally say she loved us. We knew she loved us. And so in my grandma's house, where we often lived, on every wall, there was my grandma's idol. And that was the Virgin Mary. So she is my third. <laughs> That's my other side, Paul. This is an element. <laughs> so the Virgin Mary, the third M, Again, a motherly figure, you know, is kind of, I grew up in a way, much like Marilyn, kind of idolising her too, because as I say, she looked down from all the walls at my grandma's house and my grandma, oh, she revered her. I mean, she must have done the rosary about 18 times every night. I would hear her bless her, you know, counting the beads, you do the little rosary beads and you say the prayers. And I knew the Hail Mary, age nine, forever, still know the Hail Mary. And... I just think, who is this beautiful, pure-looking, you know, perfect, ideal woman? And when you read factually about Mary, I mean, when you think about it, she was 14 years old and chosen, if one believes that, chosen by God to be the mother of his child. I mean, if you really want to look at it in a, I suppose, dark way almost, I mean, 14, imagine that in today's world. You know, the, poor Mary is all I'm thinking. Poor Mary to take that on at such a young age. And then the burden of being responsible for the world's sins. Because that's what my grandma always, always used to say to us. She always used to say, oh, I feel for Mary. She's got the burden of the world on her shoulders. And she did, didn't she? She did. <laughs> There's another M hovering around this conversation, which is which I find interesting, which is Madonna. Because, of course, yeah. Madonna very much channeled Marilyn Monroe and she famously was yeah. compared to her. But Madonna also had a very traumatic childhood, the loss of her mother and the whole virgin whore dynamic, yeah. which is a huge part of Madonna's persona as well. How could it not be when, when you're called Madonna? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, we should chuck Madonna in there because, you know, we're that age group, aren't we? We grew up with Madonna, you know, we loved Madonna. Um but yeah, she was fascinated, wasn't she? And again, I, I do think it's the mother thing. You know, you in in the absence of a loving mother, shall we say, you you seek it elsewhere in whatever form, don't you? But I remember I used to put my grandma's um, <laughs> headscarf around my face and try and look as pure as Mary. <laughs> and <laughs> never managed. Never. I used to think, oh, can I be... And I did briefly at that age think, oh, I'd like to be a nun. I, I thought I'd like to, you know, walk about all lovely and quiet and beautiful. And, and my grandma used to just shake her head and, no, never going to happen, Louise. <laughs> You're not going to be a nun. My stepfather, who's Irish Protestant, goes to church regularly, but the rest of the family never did, and I never did. But I was obsessed with religion, largely because I had a sort of platonic crush on, on the teacher who was called Mrs. Jones. And she looked to my mind like Debbie Harry, and she taught religious studies in a very, very irreverent, shall we say, way. So on one occasion, we were doing John's Gospel, and she said, 
when Jesus here says that a prophet isn't respected in his own country, that's just like Shirley Bassey, her name's Dirt in Tiger Bay. And then <laughs> I have to pursue this course now. So I, I studied religion uh, all the way to A-level and I'm at university, actually, I went to university to study it, but was never a believer. But because I was so open about my enthusiasm, I started to get targeted by the Jehovah's Witnesses and they would turn up at my, at my mum's house to try and recruit me when I was about 15, 16. And there was a part of me because I'm struggling with my sexuality and not wanting it to be true at that time. I didn't want to be gay. I was trying desperately hard not to be gay. And I had girlfriends. I knew it wasn't what I wanted, but there was a temptation. It did seem to offer a temptation that this would give you another path in life that was free of all that complicated sexuality stuff. Of course, the irony being that the church is actually full of complicated sexuality, as we've been <laughs> yeah. discovering ever since. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I mean, I'm so glad my grandma, God love her, she died 14, 15 years ago. I'm so glad she's not around to see some of the stories coming out because she would be heartbroken. She... She was, I mean, she was devout. Everybody where she lived who was needy or disabled, she'd go on these pilgrimages to bloody Lewards every year. Do you know what I mean? She was just, I suppose my grandma actually is a fourth icon, really. But she's not an M, she's a K, she's Kathleen. So God bless you, Kathleen. <laughs> is there much about your relationship with her in the memoir? There is, yeah, because of us, because of us living there. Um, I think it was about six months after my mum's suicide when I was nine attempt should I say and then on and off through our life she came to live with us when my mum was either in an asylum mental hospital mother and baby unit wherever she was absent a lot uh, she would come and care for us so really she was she was my other mother I used to send her mother's day cards because what it felt right to do that and to be honest when she died it was devastating oh my word Paul it was the full-on Catholic funeral you've never seen anything like it I mean because the community loved her the church was so full they were outside and they lined they all lined up the road holding flowers it was as if she you know what she was the blooming virgin Mary in Stockton on Tees was my grandma they loved her and so it was a very moving ceremony and the doors opened and blooming Ave Maria's playing and obviously then we're all roaring as we say up here in Hulth like very emotional um, and I do, I miss her every day. Sometimes I feel around me though. As now I'm just hearing my voice saying, it's all right, Louise. I really do. She taught me how to be kind and she taught me how to be a mother. Definitely. I don't know what I'd have done otherwise. <laughs> what is your relationship with your actual mother like now? Um, I ended the relationship, which is such a huge thing to do with your own mother. It took me a long time. Like you talking about 50 earlier, Seems like 50, I think, in our lives is a big one because we're not remotely old yet. You know, we're still young enough that we have lives, but we've got a lot of years behind us by then, I think, haven't we, where we're looking back on a lot. And I got to 50 and the relationship with my mother is it's tricky, it's complex, um, it's just so difficult. And everyone said to me, why... Why do you have a relationship with her? I said, let's say that what she is like with you, let's say if a boyfriend, a husband, a friend, if they were like that, what would you do? I said, oh God, I wouldn't be in a relationship with them. And they said, why do you feel that you have to be because it's your mother? And it's just this guilt thing, isn't it? Guilt, shame, all of it. Just, you, you can't end a relationship with your mother. But there were a few big turning points. One of them was that we sort of finally addressed the abuse from our childhood with her and she wasn't having any of it. So that was a big 
just like oh wow okay you know just denial uh, not interested so that was a big factor and so I ended it in September of last year and although I do get sad now and again and I, I do feel guilty I do I think I always will and I was very sad on Mother's Day I have to admit that I've had more peace because when I came home from seeing her, my husband Joe would always say Louise you're a wreck you're like you're angry you're anxious we know now that you're going to be in a state for a few days and now I don't I don't go through that um and that's a good thing so it's a slow process I made the right decision but sadly I do think there's an element and maybe that will feel bad about it for the rest of my life or her life I think what you've done is incredibly brave actually because it is hard to do that especially when it's your mother and you know that it's the right thing for you just because somebody is biologically or otherwise related to you doesn't mean that you're obliged there comes a point at which you have to just say to that person "Uh uh-uh we're done you know yeah absolutely and that's why I know it was the right thing but even when we do the right thing there are all the other feelings involved out there. It's never just clean cut, is it? And like, and I mean, unless you're a psychopath, you're never just going to switch the feelings off, are you? I mean, you know, because obviously there are some elements that I remember good of her. A thing that occurred to me that I said to Madeline Black recently, which were quite powerful, I realised that the very gifts that my parents gave me, which is good sense of humour and a literary ability, those very gifts are the things that saved me from the things they did to me. So it's just almost like they handed me the gift. Here you are, Louise. You know, we'll pass this on to you so that you can then deal with how we're going to treat you. It's awful, isn't it? But there you go. So where are you at now in terms of you've got the memoir out there. You've you've written about this, your truth, and you've shared it. How does it feel having it out there in the world? It was terrifying at first. The day that it was um, released in audio, but I did just sit there and think, my God, people can now actually listen to my my story, things that I've not shared with anyone. I mean, you know, you've written a memoir, you know this, Paul, that there are certain things you think each time, am I including that? Am I not including that? And I would I would like to say genuinely, I included 90% of the things from my life and childhood. And the only things I didn't include were maybe things where other people, it maybe made them seem even worse, if that makes sense. I mean, for God's sake, I shared very brutally how promiscuous I was because of the childhood abuse and then I was kind of fine for a few years and then in my early 20s I was I was scandalous I was it was it was a form of self-harm I think now because I would be out on a night sometimes more than one man I was like you know it was almost like I wanted to sort of be ruined and hurt I didn't I didn't associate sex with love it was just oh give it away because then no one can take it which obviously you know is what happened to me as a child and I wondered about sharing that. I thought, oh, my God, you know, the people that like me, they might think, oh, Louise. Oh, I don't. But I thought, do you know what? I'm I'm not ashamed because there was a reason I behaved that way. And then I, I met Joe when I was, t- that's my husband, when I was 26. Never looked back. Been with him ever since, you know. So the, the, there's that other side to me. The, the, I suppose, again, it's the whore virgin, isn't it? The, there are the two sides. So I understood about including that. So when it went out and I knew people could listen... I was really nervous, really, really nervous. But you know what, Paul, and this prepares you for yours, the private messages mainly, some public, but the private messages I've had from people saying, oh my God, I identify, I get this, I went through this, thank you for writing this, thank you for sharing this. 
I, I just fit, I feel seen, you know, I feel empowered. And I swear I've sat and cried at some of the messages I've got really, really. And there's something so liberating and powerful and feeling like you've done a good thing. You've put your shame out there. You've literally bared your soul. And yet people, people still like me. Do you know what I mean? I found what you said there about sexual compulsiveness very, very, very deeply relatable. There is a lot of very similar behaviour in, in my book. I also took the decision very early on that, with very few exceptions, that I would only include myself in the situations involving bad behaviour, not other people. So, for example, there yeah. are lots of scenes involving... Um, substance abuse and other things in my memoir and there were other people present but it's not my place to put them there yeah. because it's not their story it's my story but it is a big responsibility isn't it because you know that as a writer you're choosing to share this and the other people in your life I mean there's that old cliche about nobody wants a writer in the family because no one's got any secrets anymore <laughs> because that's the nature of a memoir you're telling your truth it's almost like you're testing your readers, um, how far can I push you on? Will you still love me? Will you still like me when you read this about me? Isn't it? There's a there's a vulnerability you're you've got in doing so. But but I hope the same happens for you. But honestly, so far, on, only good responses so far. I'm quite confident in that respect because when I decided to disclose what happened to me as a child, I wrote a blog post about what happened to me. And rather like you were just describing, I was overwhelmed with the number of messages I got, including from people that I know in real life. It was extraordinary to me how many people identified with what I'd written, that they'd had similar experiences, because I think it's one of the great unspoken things in our society and culture is just how widespread this kind of stuff is. Absolutely, because for every person that has finally found a voice, there are probably a hundred who haven't yet. And that's it's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? But that that's the thing that Madeleine Black taught me. You know, she has found her voice and she's like, I'm buggered if I'm going to be shut up now. No one's going to keep me quiet now. She's wonderful. The last line of my memoir is, I won't go quietly. And that is my message. I will not go quietly. I will keep speaking the truth my truth until the day I die. I spent the first part of my life being quiet about being gay and then I spent a large part of my life being quiet about other stuff. So I'm damned if I'm going to go on being quiet now. I mean, why? <laughs> why should I? And why should she? And why should you? Why should any of us? And, and it's interesting, the last line of the memoir, the last line of my memoir was, we are written. And I was talking about my siblings and me. So it's a similar thing. It's it's like we're on the page now. I've I've told the story now because similar to you, I was taught to be quiet and I was taught to behave, and and I'm like I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to behave. <laughs> yeah, in a clean living sort of way. But yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing so openly your story and the reason why you chose the particular heroes that you chose today for this conversation. I really appreciate it, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I will encourage everyone to go off and read your books. I'm a huge fan of your writing anyway, and they must get the audio of your memoir. Do you know yet if there are plans for a digital or paperback publication? 
I haven't signed anything yet, but my agent is discussing with um, someone. So fingers crossed, I will definitely mm -hmm. share as soon as I know anything. Thank you so much indeed for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. When I first met him, I went to his house in Bushy. I went to his mum and dad's house. They had a party on New Year's Eve and they invited me. I remember George saying to me, I'm in a band now. Yeah, I've started a band called Wham. I was like, all oh, right, okay, yeah. My mum took me to see The Wizard of Oz at the cinema. It was the first time I ever went to a film on the big screen. And when I saw Judy Garland, when I specifically heard her singing Over the Rainbow, I thought, here is someone whose feelings seem to be as strong as mine. And she's not ashamed of it. She's not afraid of it. She's not even embarrassed. She's not hiding it. She's leading with her strong feelings as though they're the best thing that people could have. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.